0: Uh, for the movie Silence, um, how many, have any of you read the book Silence? So, a, a few. Um, it's a um, uh, Endo, Shoshako Endo, who was the author of the book Silence, uh, was the, one of the best known novelists in Japan in the um, mid late eight, uh, 20th century. Uh, and he was a Christian, which makes him unusual in Japan. And the book is about um, a, a Portuguese Jesuit missionary. Who comes um, almost uh, at the I don't know if it's at the, kind of at the beginning mid stages of intense persecution of the Christian community in Japan, and is a deep reflection on um, how do you endure suffering when God seems incredibly silent, which is the reason um, the book is called Silence. And so, how do you endure and have faith in a world filled with pain, suffering when God seems to? Dis- Uh, refuse to speak. So you can imagine why it's um, a profound book, maybe for many of us, uh, very appropriate as we enter into the Christmas season where we celebrate and remember Christ's coming and yet so many people long for and still do not see redemption and change, but also might be um, the kind of movie that you could invite a friend to because um, nobody could be awake in this season of this our world's life and not ask the question, in a world of such intense suffering, uh, why does God not seem to speak or act? And um, Makoto's book um, is a, a parallel reflection as a Christian on themes of suffering, themes of God's silence, and what is the role of beauty in um, helping us hear God speak. So i um, it's another wonderful opportunity. And again, um, well, I'll, I'll bring them up later. Um, the, but it's, thinking about the movie actually is a good way of um, reminding us of the bracing and odd nature of Advent, isn't it? Because the challenge for so many of us is <clears throat> the entire culture, everybody around us is slowly sliding into um, the expected sentimentality of Christmas at an alarming rate. right? So, Um, More and more Christmas movies are coming on TV or cable. Uh, I don't watch, but I'm just trusting nothing has changed in the last five to ten years. And there will be heartwarming stories of of families gathering around Christmas and the lone prodigal coming back. It will be times for um, the gift of the magi and these beautiful self-sacrificial stories of caring and kindness, and these are all good. And even in the songs we begin to sing, you begin to encounter the baby Jesus, who's so adorable, Because no crying he makes. And if you're a non-crying baby, you're absolutely adorable. (laughs) Right? It's silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. The baby just quietly there. And I don't know about you, but I've attended two births of my own children. Now, admittedly, it occurred in a hospital and not at a manger. But there were moments of silence. And there were moments of calm. And yet there was a lot of flurry and confusion and anxiety and fear had moments of peace maybe while the baby was nursing, but everything else in that manger wasn't quiet. Um, And Advent is actually our way as a Christian community, both in this church and in churches around the world, to remind ourselves not just of the beauty and the appropriate sentiments of love, joy, peace, and hope that we remember with the Advent wreath during the Advent season, but it also reminds us that as Jesus came once, he's coming again and that we live in that in-between space of his entry into the world as a child and powerless and his death and resurrection and his eventual return to bring justice and wholeness into the world fully. Um, And it's important to remember, I think, that um, as much as Christmas includes love and welcome and opening our doors to friends and family um, and strangers— Around a meal and around the exchange of gifts. Um, As anybody who has recently or even in the past welcomed a baby to their home, you know, um, as soon as a child enters your world, it's a lot more than just love and snuggles. Your entire world is upended. Everything changes the rhythms of sleeping if you get any and eating if you're able to um, and ways that you relate have all changed. I used to describe uh, my first daughter when she was born as an infant she's like um, well a friend described her his child as the most high maintenance house plant he's ever encountered because she would just lay there his child but then require all sorts of um, you know very complicated precise sort of care and he said but Does she respond? No, she's like a houseplant. She just lays there. This is before she could even smile, right? I used to describe my children as the most demanding cult leaders in the world because they would wake you up in the middle of the night with no warning and just begin screaming at you so you're constantly in a state of exhaustion and disorientation, right? Absolutely demanding, right? Wanted absolute obedience to their smallest command. Feed me now, change me now, hold me now, do it now. Um, And at the same time, expect unrequited and absolute devotion and obedience and love. And we gave it to them. Um, Advent and Christmas puts us in this unique opportunity to remember the sentimental, beautiful things about Jesus that Christmas draws our attention to. But it gives us four weeks to sit in that unsatisfied, longing that we sang in those first songs, come thou long expected Jesus, because we would like him to come again. Right? I love, "O come, O come Emmanuel, because even as we're singing, rejoice, rejoice, um, um, rejoice, rejoice, uh, you know, uh, Israel, um, the tune itself is weirdly minor and melancholy, even as we remind ourselves to rejoice and it ends in this unresolved way. Um, And it's because, as this passage reminds us during Advent, that Jesus' coming does two uh, very distinct things that we need to hold together in this season. Jesus comes, as Dick reminded us last week, to free people from the demonic forces that trap and enslave them, right? And that's what we usually celebrate. As we think about the accomplishments of the cross, as we engage in Christmas, that Jesus has come to push back the forces of darkness. Jesus has come to free those who are trapped by their own sin, who feel burdened under the slavery to their own desires, wants, and needs, without the ability to see beyond themselves. Jesus has come to free us from any fear that we would have of God the Father because we know we are forgiven. And this is really good news. And because Jesus has bound Satan, his followers, we, his church, are able to proclaim to people there's freedom ahead. Right? There is hope for you. You are no longer shackled to the um, addictions, large or small, which continue to control your world. You are no longer bound by the principalities and powers which would direct how you think and how you buy and how you live in the world. You are free to be new people. And as a church, the good news that we bring to people is that freedom is possible, freedom can actually be experienced, and freedom is being offered. And that's why in this Christmas season, um, there are so many activities that you could invite a friend to. A cookie exchange, which seems very unreligious, but allows people to meet other Christians, right? Lessons and carols, which reiterate the history of the church and our longings about Jesus, uh, various worship things, even... Hey, come enjoy my children. They're really delightful um, at a Christmas pageant. And what every survey done in the last five to seven years has said is the majority of non-churched Americans would attend church on Christmas or around Christmas if they were just invited. Pew just released another survey this last week that said that of Um, The unchurched, unchristian people in the United States, I think that, I want to say the number is about 70% of them said they were likely to accept an invitation if somebody would just make it. That's the opportunity before us. Um, And it's this very attractive picture of being freed from sin, freed from our slavery, free from Satan's... um, Control, But I want to suggest from this same passage that Dick preached on last week, that if all we do is declare that people are free from sin or guilt or self-centeredness, we haven't actually proclaimed the whole truth about their freedom. Because we are freed from sin for a purpose. And I think the tendency here for us, at least in the United States, is that it's easy for us to desire freedom from things it's built into the very birth narrative of our of our country. Apologies to our um, English friends, but right, the birth narrative of our country is along freedom from, right, freedom from um, control of another country, freedom from a particular form of taxes. It's the the narrative that deep most deeply resonates in the American soul. Right? It's exactly what we see reiterated every 4th of July on our national holidays, but you see reiterated as well in our political um, discourse, because every party would like to free us from something. And that's the nature. We rarely hear a political party, except maybe um, in the years of John F. Kennedy, saying, actually, um, we exist not to be free from things. We exist to be able to give ourselves to something higher, better, deeper, broader, and richer. Um, We see it in every movie almost produced, in every TV show, don't we, of people seeking freedom um, from oppressive relationships of marriage that they don't enjoy, from the binds of parents who want to control us as we're becoming adults now and want to be free and be able to explore all of our narratives, explore that. And yet scripture says it's not enough to be free from things. Because you have to be aware of what you're being freed from something so that you could be freed for something else. We're freed from sin for a purpose. And the second half of the passage that we read looks at that. Um, because Jesus says, look, I'm being criticized for casting out demons by the power of demons. That makes no sense at all. Why would demons bother with that? If they're already in control, they're going to stay in control. Uh, But, in fact, if somebody casts out a demon, it's because they are more powerful than the demon, by another power than the demon, because the Lord God himself is manifesting and casting out that demon. And when this otherwise secure demon encounters somebody stronger, the stronger person wins and cleans house. And then he says this odd thing, right? If you aren't for me, you're against me, and those who do not gather to me will be scattered. Then he tells this interesting parable beginning in um, verse 24. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And that was the um, common cultural assumption that if you exercised an demon, if you would cast one out, it would wander in the desert places. Um, It would wander in these arid, um, unenjoyable places of the world. And that's why often in... um, the uh, exorcism narratives, you often find them occurring in deserts or more uh, wasteland areas because demons evidently seem to like that thing. Jesus isn't endorsing this particular; He's just using the stories that they would have been familiar with. After the demons cast out, it goes back to that arid, dry, deserty place that none of us want to be at. But it doesn't find a good place to be because who wants to be in a desert? So then it says, I'm going to go return to the house that I left. When the demon arrives, when the impure spirit arrives, it finds the house. This person swept clean and put in order because the person's been exercised. The house has been made right again. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and start to live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Um, I want to suggest that what Jesus is describing here. Um, is less a truism about exorcisms, right? This is more of a parable that we're to reflect on. Um, But what he's describing is the spiritual plight of somebody who's been freed, whose life has been reordered in some way, but the house still seems oddly empty, does it not? Because you would hope that were a demon to return, it would find somebody at home. But the demon seems to return back and goes... I left this place a mess, and somebody cleaned it up, and now I'm free to come back in. And so he invites his friends, and it's worse than before. And we know practically that this is actually the kind of thing that happens all the time. I mean, using words about impure spirits makes it seem very odd and very exotic, but um, we know this from our attempts at regime change as a country, don't we, that you replace Um, an otherwise in control despotic government. And unless you're able to replace it immediately with a government that's stable, secure, and sovereign, chaos is unleashed. And we're living with the effects of that still as a country with Iraq and Libya um, and Afghanistan. Because um, when there's a vacuum of control, chaos takes over. Right? We know that from cleaning our house, don't we? I have small children. This is my hourly occurrence. We neaten in the house and unless somebody exerts iron-willed control over the activities of what remains in the house. Somehow the second law of thermodynamics takes over and chaos emerges again. Often through the agents of chaos in my house <laughs> who are ages six and eight. Um, we know this just from the simple daily experiences that we have of trying to break bad habits, don't we? Um, Whether of dieting or smoking or small addictions, whatever it is, um, you can try to stop something to be free of it. But unless you fill that space with something else, you inevitably go back to it. Uh, Charles Duhigg, in his amazing book called The Power of Habit, partially says the, the way addictions and habits tend to work is there's a trigger event that causes you to do something automatically that gives you some sort of pleasure, which is why you keep doing it. And he says, in order to change a habit, you have to identify the trigger. What's the thing that always gets me to do it? And then actually find something else that provides a different sort of pleasure for you to fill that kind of space, right? So for those of us who've tried to eat more healthily, um, the simple thing they often say is, right, it's both portion control and eating healthier things. So what should you do? Eliminate the unhealthy things from your house because it's just so easy to reach for that bag of chips. But if what's easier to reach for is the fruit or vegetables, you are more likely to eat that, right? And that, you know, rather than allowing your um, uh, food, because I think about food all the time, uh, the the way you manage amount of food is that you pre-portion your food. So that you're able to control, I, I'm going to eat this and then I will stop. right? But if you're left with, an, um, there was a, a professor at Cornell who did this amazing study where um, he invited people to come and eat in his lab and they had bowls of soup. Um, but they filled the soup from the bottom while the people were eating without telling the people. And people literally were eating quarts of soup at a time without realizing it. Because as long as there was soup there, they would just continue to fill their mouth without thinking that they had to ask for more. Right, and so that's why they say you know prepackage your food for lunch, and um, but it's all about having the trigger, and then rather than just saying no and denying yourself the thing, I'm hungry, I'm still not going to eat, which never works. It's to actually choose something healthier and in a smaller quantity, which is why we have now in the in Target and the grocery store so many of those snack packs, right? Small amounts of cookie is better than large bag of cookie, right? small thing of carrots, which is nature's candy is how they're trying to sell it now. Um, (laughs) Is better than the M&M's. In my family, it's, you know, uh, we like just chocolate chips straight, uh, but they give me a, like, it's a smaller amount of intense chocolate rather than the giant bar I don't even secretly, I desperately long for, right? But three chocolate chips and walk away. Um, But it's true in countries, it's true in our homes, it's true in our daily experience. The reality is if you want to be free of something, it's not just enough to clear it out, you actually have to replace it with something healthier, better, and life-giving for you. right? Whether it's a stable government that actually can be in control, um, a set of behaviors that can keep your house clean, or replacing um, a longed for food item with something that's easier to get to better for you and gives you some pleasure of not only does it reasonably tasty, but also you know you're making a good choice for health. Um, And Jesus says it's true spiritually as well. It's not enough to just be free from the power of sin and evil, as good as that is. And let's agree, it's very good. If all you want is freedom, if all you want is to feel better, you're actually falling into um, what sociologists who've studied American Christianity have termed um, moral therapeutic deism rather than actual Christianity. Right? And what sociologists call moral therapeutic deism is this. In general, most people in America pursue religion so that they'd be a little bit more moral. They want to be nice and they want other people just to be nice, or nicer. It's therapeutic in that we largely pursue religion to feel better about ourselves, to take off some of the edges of where our life is hurting us. So we'd like to be a little happier. We'd like to be a little bit more encouraged. We'd like to feel better about ourselves. And it's deistic, there is a God, but we're hoping God just doesn't do very much around us, beyond making us a little nicer and a little happier. Right? It's essentially the church of Oprah Winfrey Who, who does a good things right? As far as it goes Because she would love for people To be a little happier And a little bit nicer And she believes in a spiritual world out there But it's a spiritual world That doesn't demand as much And the problem is When you pursue moral therapeutic deism You end up with very nice Reasonably happy people Who don't really need God because he can be substituted for so many other things. A little pharmacology, a little consumer shopping therapy, um, just being in a nice relationship will do that. The challenge when you pursue moral therapeutic deism is that you end up raising children who think that the sole point of the Christian life is just to be nicer and a little better. And what I can say, in college ministries, those children don't survive contact with the real world. And every study that Fuller Seminary has done studies on what helps children survive the transition to adulthood, what they say are two things, one of which is they need multi-generational, particularly adult and older-aged Christians to be engaged in their life so that they have multiple points of contact beyond their parents or a youth leader. But it's really the parents and grandparents, the uncles and aunties of the church that keep people in the faith. And they need a faith which actually helps them recognize the goal is not just to be good kids because you're going to fail. And not just happy kids because one day you're going to be sad. But kids who so deeply experience the reality and knowledge that you will fail morally and you will be discouraged at times. But how does Jesus meet you in failure and discouragement and begin to transform you? That's what allows them to get to college, to fail morally and struggle emotionally and continue in the faith. And when that's modeled by adults who share actual real stories of that being true of their Christian experience, you begin to raise people who have the resilience to survive into adulthood as Christians. Um, If you pursue moral therapeutic deism, um, it affects the kind of witness that we have to the community around us. Because then the goal of our community witness is to show that we're nicer, more moral people. And the reality is we like the idea of nicer and more moral people, but we think they're somewhat stuffy. Like we're constantly going to be reminded of how bad our manners are if we're invited to their house for dinner, or that we're never going to measure up. And the shattering truth and hope that we offer as a community is not that we're nicer and more moral than the people that we're around, but we're actually far more aware of our brokenness, far more desperate than they could even imagine, And we've seen a Savior who transforms us and changes us. And we know we aren't fully transformed enough yet. And that's the beauty of Advent for us, isn't it? We're not quite there yet. And I wonder if you were to invite a neighbor to a cookie exchange, if they didn't encounter just nice, more moral people, but transparent, honest people who had found in Jesus some hope. And the ability to walk another day, if that wouldn't make that cookie exchange a place actually where your non-Christian neighbor would be like, oh, I'd love to have another conversation with people like you again. Right? Um, The problem, of course, is as human beings, when left to ourselves, we're vulnerable. Um, We're vulnerable to our own idol making factories that are our hearts and to the influence of external forces around us. So, what are we freed for, right? If this empty vacuum is not actually the goal, we're freed for Jesus and for his service. And I think that's where that next part of the story begins to take over because he says, look, if, all you do is you get freedom from evil and you create a little space in your heart, the reality is free, um, that evil will return. And actually, there's nothing worse, according to C.S. Lewis, than, um, a religiously bad person because a person who thinks they're freed from evil but continues to be occupied and controlled by evil does even worse things than the worst atheist would ever do, right? Because there's nothing worse than a self-righteous, terrible, angry person. So what are we feed for? So Jesus is telling the story, and I think overcome by um, a sense of what an amazing teacher and what power he, he shows. A woman cries out in the audience, which I love. And she says, blessed is the woman who bore you and nursed you. And what she's really saying is, man, if I had a son like that, um, which plays into every Jewish mom stereotype in the world. right? Because you know her son's probably standing right next to her when that's happening, right? Blessed is the one who bore you and nursed you because if she had a son like that, she would be blessed indeed. And what I love is Jesus doesn't deny that at all. He doesn't go, no, right? He instead redirects it because that's part of what we know in the Christmas story, which was read to us, um, in the reading, uh, when the advent candle was lit up. Um, Mary is described as blessed, um, particularly when she goes to visit Elizabeth. And it's critical that she's um, favored by God and a recipient of his grace. And then she's described blessed when she goes to meet Elizabeth. And what happens in between is that Mary does one thing, right? She responds to God's invitation to her with these words. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. What changes her from somebody who's just experienced goodness and favor from God into a person who could be described as blessed? It's the posture of response of, you've told me this hard, terrible, frightening, and scary truth about who I am and what you're calling me to do, which will put me in danger, which will cause me to experience shame in my community, which will leave me vulnerable. For the rest of my life, to the comments of my neighbors, families, and friends, that I would be pregnant before I was married. In a culture where that could lead to my death. May it be to me, as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. Right? What changes her from somebody just experiencing grace into experiencing blessing is this posture of, whatever you say, I embrace it and will do it. Um, Mary models for us in that moment discipleship, doesn't she? She models what actually moves us into a place where rather than just being um, free from things, we're actually now understanding what we're freed for. We're freed so that we can embrace what God has said to us. So that we can do what he calls us to do. And that's why Jesus says... um, I'm not denying the blessed nature of my mother because of, but what makes her blessed is not her physical connection to me, her genetic connection to me, our long familial relationship. The fact that she bore me is not the cause of her blessedness. Why is she blessed? Blessed rather, he says, are those who hear the word of God and obey it. It's interesting because in Matthew's telling of the story, what comes usually at this point is not this story of this woman calling out. It's another story. You see, at one point, Jesus was doing so much ministry, his family was quite concerned for him because he wasn't eating or sleeping well. And so um, Mary and um, his brothers and I think one of his sisters came to go pick him up and bring him back home for a little bit of a rest. um, Because they thought he was out of his mind. And so they arrive at the door of the house at which Jesus is teaching. And as he's teaching, somebody comes over. Your mom and your brother are here. They're outside. They want to talk to you. And Jesus looks up, and he does this incredibly harsh thing in a Jewish context. Because I believe what he did is he looks out the doors and he sees his mother and brothers uh, and standing there, and he says, "Who is my mother and my brother?" Who is my mother and who are my brothers? It is the people who do the will of God, who are my mothers and my, my mother and my brothers and my sisters. And do you see what he does in that moment? He says, biology does not count in this moment. My true family will be the people who follow the word of the Lord and obey it. And Luke, has, having already used that story in his gospel, uses this story to make the same point, doesn't he? Who's blessed? Whose will experience the fullness of life as I, God, intend for it? Those who embrace my word and obey it. Um, what turns somebody from a demon-ridden, idol-worshiping husk of a person into somebody who's blessed? It's how we respond to Jesus and his word. Um. Part of what that's going to call for us as a congregation, I want to suggest, is that we actually have to believe that what Scripture teaches and what God commands is actually life-giving, hope-offering, and blessed-making for us. Because I think it's so easy for us in this season to believe that what Scripture teaches is actually all about denial, harshness, and personal death. In issues around our sexuality and our generosity and self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness and humility and in hospitality, do we believe that if we were to practice what Scripture teaches, we'd actually experience life and life abundantly? That we'd actually experience deeper joy, love, peace, and hope? Or do we think it's a terrible burden to be born? Jesus makes this about him, and I think the fascinating thing is He makes it about him because he wants to challenge our notions of what it means to receive him. When you think of him merely as a small baby and child, it's easy to think, we're just going to snuggle. I'll hold him, there'll be a bottle, it'll be warm and comfy with a nice blanket around ourselves. And there is that when you have a baby in your house. But there's so much more because your world will be upended. We often think, I think, that we're inviting Jesus as a house guest into our home. Maybe, you know, over morning cup of tea when you have a quiet time or once a week for an hour and a half on a Sunday. At worst, maybe you've invited him into your home as an interior decorator. He's going to come in and consult a little bit about the color of a wall here or there or maybe a different kind of throw pillow that you need. And instead, as soon as he walks in the door, you realize he's holding blueprints in his hand and has a sledgehammer and he's about to get to work. That's why Advent focuses us both on Christ's first and his second coming, because it challenges us to go beyond the sentimentality of Christmas and Christ's first coming to reckon with his second. Um, Edgar Hicks has a poem called Advent II. It goes like this. The year the tree fell, little bits of brittle angels all over the floor, bent up boxes and torn paper. I cut myself a dozen times on sparkly slivers of broken balls. The year the tree falls, no pastoral night nativities, no gentle carpenter hung on boards. This time, Advent comes on horseback, and the angels will be armed. The invitation for us in this Advent season is to identify those places, I think, in our life where um, we may have been freed from the burden of sin and the reign of Satan But we still find ourselves empty and longing, waiting to be transformed, waiting to experience the kind of um, deep experience of God's continual speaking to us and changing of us that would allow us to be honest, open, and truthful about where we're at, but also hopeful about where God is taking us. To cease being just nice people, but actually new people. To being the community that the world around us needs to have. Because nice moral people are nice moral people. But a new people would be something well worth beholding. And so with that, we come to communion. Because communion is actually the perfect reminder, right? We celebrate Christ's first coming in the breaking of bread. And as Paul reminded us and Jesus reminded us, we do so until he comes. Reminding us of how he will satisfy us fully when he returns. And so let me pray for us. Lord, as we come uh, to you uh, through your word and then uh, in a few minutes to your table, um, help us to identify our longings, um, however deeply buried, um, to become a new people before you. Um, Free us from the desire merely just to be nice, and instead, to live the resurrection. And as we do so, we pray not just for ourselves, but for the world, uh, which continues to groan in pain, in agony, isolation, and lostness. May we be first fruits of the coming of your kingdom as signs and wonders of the hope that you offer. And then we do pray one day, with the words to joy to the world be fulfilled. Um, no more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his righteous known, far as the curse is found. May it be so one day we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much, Greg.